Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. Okay, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Michael Judd. And, uh, Michael, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Sure. Um, Michael Judd here. I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Maryland. We grow a cornucopia of fruits and nuts and work with permaculture design, uh, focusing largely on perennial food systems, uh, sometimes referred to as tree crops. Uh, I also focus on creating agroforestry designs on larger landscapes uh, with a real focus on nut trees. Now, my journey uh, as an adult, I've lived 20 years in rural Latin America. I lived in some of the far-flung corners uh, where there were no stores, where, you know, really what you grew is what you ate, uh, was something that I experienced deeply and has opened my, my eyes and understanding uh, around food security. And now I've come back to living in the States uh, in a very populous area, the Mid-Atlantic here. Uh, uh, I've just translated a lot of that 
food security uh, into what's going on around us here. Um, and that's a lot of what drives me toward uh, planting nut trees and, you know, sort of diversifying, uh, you know, the food source and also proving how it can be, you know, economically viable so that it really catches fire and people really start uh, wanting to plant trees because it makes money uh, and because it creates nutrient dense food and food security. Uh, and we can go into that because that, that relates to, you know, the nuts are feeding wildlife uh, and, you know, are, are another part of, of being able to live in the North is really based around nut trees. So um, I got to ask you a few things first. One, can you define permaculture for everybody that's listening out there so they can get a greater understanding and maybe even I'll get a better understanding of what actually permaculture is? <laughs> yeah, permaculture is a, is a holistic design that was developed in the late 70s uh, down in Australia by um, Tasmanian man, uh, Bill Mollison and David Holgram. And it, it is based on observation. So you observe your environment, your ecosystem, you see how things are flowing and working together. And you take those observations. And when you begin to design your habitat for food, for shelter, you know, for economic needs, even social uh, needs, you start to design everything as a whole instead of, you know, separate. You know, I would say a lot of times in modern culture, we, we, we separate and specialize things, you know, it's organic gardening and then it's forestry um, and then it's, you know, natural building. Whereas, you know, permaculture takes all these together. And as you're designing one aspect, you're, you're thinking about its relation to the other and to another. Uh, and there's kind of a general rule of thumb that, you know, any, any aspect of your design should have at least three relationships. So if you're going to, you know, put your garden in a certain location, you know, what's it relationship to, you know, to your compost, what's its relationship to your animals, you know, what's its relationship to the flow around your house. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's a wonderful um, design to learn because it, it's, it has no ceiling. It has no set hard definitions so that you learn to adapt it to your site, wherever that is, uh, and it can pretty much be applied to anywhere on the planet. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the nutshell of permaculture. A lot of it's just observation and then designing, you know, in those patterns of nature, but with our modern realities, you know, with economies in mind, uh, you know, with modern comforts and, you know, all these different realities we have now, but using successful natural patterns to design. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great explanation of it that I haven't quite um, heard in such detail before, which is, uh, it's kind of nice because it gives a better, a better picture. And I'm sure uh, a lot of listeners as well, myself fully didn't have an understanding of it before, but designing it, you know, in, in the ways that you put it, definitely, definitely help with that. Um, so I'm kind of curious, um, before we get into how you and I were talking about nut trees and all that kind of stuff and how it applies to wildlife and hunting and designing landscapes for hunting, things like that. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is pawpaws and, uh, like geographically speaking, 
where they were located, where they pretty much can be found now, and if you wanted to kind of spread them out and actually start planting them, where would be good locations to kind of start growing them? Because pretty much anymore around me, the only people who have pawpaws, I'm in the northern portion of Illinois, and which once was, you know, native everywhere, probably throughout Illinois, is no longer existent other than pretty much in the south. Mm. So the pawpaw is an extremely unique uh, species. It is basically a tropical fruit that migrated north, you know, over millions of years. Uh, from what we call modern day, you know, northern Mexico, that region uh, began coming north on receding glaciers and, you know, the guts of giant, you know, sloths and mastodons and just adapted, 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 adapted uh, all the way up into what we call today, you know, Southern Ontario and Canada, uh, which is remarkable. I mean, there's no, there's nothing else like it in the landscape. There's no other tropical species that is thriving and living here in the cold North, um, you know, through the winters and being, you know, super productive in the right conditions. Uh, so we are talking about a very adaptive species that can grow in full shade, you know, in the, in the dense canopy of the forest, uh, but not produce fruit in those circumstances. Uh, it can grow on the edge of the forest where it gets partial light, and then it can grow in full sun. Uh, and its range is, you know, you know, historically, you know, they, there's about 26 states, you know, that it's found in, but it's pushing those limits because we're talking about a very adaptive species. Uh, it's really impressive and really fun to work with uh, because of that. And so it's, it's spreading out, uh, you know, Europe, there's, there's quite a renaissance and a lot of growing in Europe. Uh, South Korea has planted, you know, more than a million of these trees, partly for their medicinal value as well. So they have a very strong medicinal compound uh, that's been called acetogenin. That's in the twigs and the leaves. It's being used uh, for, for research uh, and application um, in relation to cancer and other, other disease issues. Um, so, and then in the U.S., it's, it grows, I mean, it grows roughly between USDA zones um, five, six, going down into zone nine. Um, and on the northern edge, which is maybe what you're, you're, you're talking about there, Luke, um, is, is the fact that it needs a long enough summer uh, to ripen its fruits. Uh, so the trees themselves will, will grow into zone four, um, but you need that sort of long, warm summer to get that fruit to ripen. And that tends to happen more starting at about zone 5B, 6, and then of course, you know, 7, 8 are on the sweet spot. Uh, and then you start getting down south, um, you know, sort of southern Georgia is where they, you know, they stop really being successful. Uh, but that said, people are trying and growing out seedlings, and those seedlings are adapting genetically to their environment, and they can keep migrating. You know, as humans, that's one of the great things we can do is help plants migrate. We can help propagate. You know, we can we can sort of interject our touch into the genome of of, of the plant world, and the pawpaw is very very ready to interact with us and move. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see it going into new territories. Uh, the north, uh, I know it's being grown in the northwest some, you know, northern California, Oregon, Washington State, 
Uh, again, part of the challenge is making sure that they get a warm, you know, summer to ripen that fruit. Uh, so certain genetics there of the pawpaw would be shorter season pawpaws, ones that have been noted to, to fruit, uh, you know, quicker um, than others. So again, it's getting to know maybe what pawpaws are closest to your region and then start working with some of the seedlings uh, in the grafted you know, cultivar world of pawpaws, there are certain ones that have been developed uh, in, in cooler climates, cloudier climates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wrote a whole book on pawpaws uh, called For the Love of Pawpaws. And in there, I, I certainly get into many of the cultivars and, and uh, some, of these, some of these nuances of the pawpaw. Uh, but I'll stop there and see, see what you're curious about. I could go on forever. So, yeah, no, it's, I, I find it just super interesting. I'm just sitting here in awe as, and listening, you know, as we're talking about this because it's so fascinating. Um, I, I have a friend that actually, I think he has like two pawpaw trees in his yard that he actually planted. Um, I'm not sure where he got them or, you know, where they're from, but they actually do rather well and they produce uh, – Almost almost every year they produce a decent amount of pawpaws, which I found really fascinating. And that was my first uh, kind of introduction into pawpaws and eating one for the first time. And, you know, knowing that Lewis and Clark and, you know, other people on expeditions and whatnot actually, you know, ate the same fruit. It was just kind of fascinating to me that, you know, they've been around so long and, and uh, thrived. Yeah, yeah, they, they um, so... If you have, you know, some of these more selected genetics, it's kind of like comparing a wild apple tree, crab apple to like a golden delicious. <laughs> you know, you've got a, you got a big spectrum of genetics to choose from. And same with the pawpaw. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll find pawpaws in the wild that are small, uh, you know, the size of, you know, kind of like a, a fingerling potato. And it'll have large, uh, you know, lima bean sized seeds in it. So it won't have very much flesh. And then that flesh could be, you know, bitter and, and tannic versus ones that have been selected, you know, by humans over time. Uh, you know, you're talking about large fruits, sometimes, you know, upwards of two pounds. So the size of a large mango and in there, there will be just a few seeds and lots of pulp and that pulp will be sweet it will be it have a nice uh custard like texture to it it'll have aromatic notes of mango banana pineapple and will be one of the most exquisite fruits you will ever eat um so you know that's one of the reasons we have a pawpaw festival uh, every every september here when we, when we have our main harvest is to get people off on the right experience with the pawpaw in uh, and, and not only the genetics, but making sure that it's picked at the right time and sort of handled properly and eaten, you know, in its in its prime state, uh, because the pawpaw is, is is not well known these days because it doesn't fit into our modern, you know, food system, transportation system, because they are very perishable. Uh, so, you know, once they've ripened, uh, you know, you maybe have two, three, four days, you know, at room temperature to eat them. Uh, you can refrigerate them for at least a week or so. And then the real saving grace is that you can pulp them and freeze it well for a year or more, and then just use it as you need it. 
And if you have a tree with good genetics, you're growing it in full sun uh, and it's got wind protection, and adequate moisture, you could be looking at 35 plus pounds of fruit off of a tree every year. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I know my buddy doesn't get that much fruit off of his, mostly because he says uh, it's a battle between him and the squirrels and some of the other critters out there to try and see who can get it, get the most uh, consumed first. Well, tell him to plant more. You know, that's the <laughs> trick. That's always the trick. You know, plant, plant, plant enough for yourself, the animals, you know, the feral hippies, you know, everybody so that there's just, that there's just plenty and, and it's not an issue of running out uh, yeah. if possible. Plant no, more. That's like when you were talking about the apples and, uh, you know, a crab apple or a feral type of apple versus uh, like Golden Delicious or whatever. I just recently, like a year ago, found out that all apples that are a certain variety are clones, you know, in the store mm. and, the you know, started digging in detail on all that. And it's just fascinating to think that, that, you know, at one point in time, there was so many different varieties available because of your local, you know, uh, cultivars that people had and things like that versus now where it's all commercialized is uh, pretty interesting. Oh yeah. That's a whole nother, yes. Uh, thing to explore. Uh, and you know, it's like, it's like bananas, you know, pretty much 90 some percent of the bananas that everyone's eating in the world is one clone. It's one variety and, uh, and issues with that are starting to show up. Um, and I think we'll see more of this as we go into the future, you know, it's kind of inevitable, um, you know, as we've been focusing, you know, the genetics, you know, in, in a limited way, and then it becomes issues with that, but our food system has become reliant on that. And it's, it's, it's going to start scrambling things, which, you know, I think is needed um, and bring us back more to understanding the importance of, of diversity and, you know, how healthy that can be. Absolutely. And I think that's a perfect segue, how you just worded that to transition into that then and talk about, uh, you know, having independent food sources that are uh, maybe native or local and how they can coexist with each other and the animals and how you can bring those in. So can we talk about that a little bit then? Yeah, yeah. I, I think nutrient density um, is, is, is really important. Uh, a, a lot of the foods that we're eating these days are not high in nutrients. You know, and that's partly because of the narrow genetics that have been focused on. A lot of times the foods, uh, like to say a lot, you know, uh, are focused for shipping, you know, and not necessarily other characteristics. Um, and then the soils they're grown in are typically depleted. So a lot of the foods we're eating don't have high nutrient uh, density in them. And that's a factor for health and just, you know, many, many things. Um, so growing food, uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons I like to focus on perennial foods. Typically perennial foods have much higher nutrient density in them. You know, they're coming from trees. They're coming from woody shrubs. They're coming from established, uh, perennials that have deep roots, you know, that are pulling up minerals from the subsoil, you know, that are holding and creating a richer soil around themselves you know, have more networks of fungi and nutrients, and that's all coming up into the food, you know, the nuts and the fruits and the berries and, you know, the fodder and things that you might be eating from those perennials are feeding your body much more deeply 
than the you know the intensive annual agriculture that our diet has become uh, so there's there's a couple layers here you know there's basic food access and food security you know and growing your own but then there's just the nutrient density and the importance of having that uh, you know in our diets but you know they, they come together when you start to work with your own food systems and and, and you know the whole idea of, <clears throat> of self-sufficiency is it's, it's really never been the case <clears throat> for humans. You know, we, we've traditionally focused on, on what uh, grew well in our area or our site, and then we would trade with others in another region that grew something else better or well. So, you know, it's not like, it's not that you have to start, you know, being totally self-sufficient. You know, I think it's important that we, that we keep working as extended community and trade and, support. Um, so don't necessarily feel like you've got to go out and grow all your own food, but focus on what does well for you. You know, our site here, we've got about 25 acres um, in, you know, mostly woods with a creek that runs through it, about three acres of open area and kind of a low riparian, you know, an Appalachian holler. Um, and certain things grow really well here. Persimmons grow really well here because of that, that wetter soil. Mulberries grow really well here. Pecans and certain hickories grow really well here. Uh, where there's drainage, pawpaws grow really well here. Same with, you know, hybrid chestnuts. So it's like, okay, well, those grow really well here. Uh, let's focus on those, you know, and let's work with that. Uh, versus saying, oh, well, maybe we should, you know, plow up a big field here and try and grow pumpkins or something. It's just not what this site is, is really sort of, you know, offering naturally. So I think it's really important to go with what your site offers naturally. And, and that means a lot less work for you as well, you know, and this comes back to permaculture and observing how what's flowing, you know, what's naturally abundant. And when you interact with what's naturally abundant, things are exponential. So you put your human touch into that flow and you get a huge response. You get you know, a huge harvest from it without a lot of input. So a good example of that for us are, are mushrooms, right? So the mid-Atlantic, lots of humidity, uh, lots of good rainfall, lots of tree and organic matter everywhere. So the mushrooms are crazy. You see them everywhere all the time. So it's like, okay, well, I'm seeing mushrooms everywhere. Uh, why don't I start just, you know, inoculating some, some logs with shiitake and oyster? Uh, you know, why don't I start inoculating the wood chips everywhere with wine cap mushrooms? Uh, and I just do this one little thing one time, and then I just get this perennial return because all that energy and the conditions are here. Um, same with the pawpaw. Pawpaw is growing wild all around us, all around us, you know, mostly in the woods. But it's like, okay, well, how about how about I, you know, get some select genetics of that pawpaw and I put it out in full sun and I give it tons of mulch so it has what it needs. And then it's super productive and I didn't have to do much uh, versus, you know, trying to, you know, come up with an idea that might be more more exotic or not really presenting itself you know, flourishing where we're at and putting tons of energy and input to get that thing to work um, is, you know, I mean, it's, it's just using a lot of energy and you don't need to. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So there's so many things there that you just touched on that I kind of want to go into detail more. Like how do, how do you inoculate, uh, say your wood chips or, or inoculate, yeah. inoculate wood to grow oyster mushrooms or things like that? Where, where do you get the original, uh, mycelium or spores or how, how do you do that? It's actually really easy. Um, mostly work with hardwoods. So in our area, we have a lot of tulip poplar uh, and we have oak. 
And the easiest one, mushrooms to grow are the ones I mentioned. Shiitake are super easy to grow on logs. Uh, they love oak, uh, really, and hard maples. And then oyster mushrooms, also very easy to grow on logs. Uh, also, you can grow those on, on straw bales and other mediums, but I only do logs. It's less work, uh, less input. And they grow well on tulip poplars and willows. So, you, you know, one of my favorite resources um, for all things fungi is field and forest products. Uh, they're out in Wisconsin. They're great folks. And their website and their catalog uh, is very how-to uh, for the beginner. And also in my first book, uh, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, which is a how-to book on many of the subjects that I'm talking about, uh, one chapter is how to grow mushrooms, uh, you know, on logs and wood chips. And, and very, very picture rich and very how-to oriented. You know, the, the, the books I've written are all things that I've been involved in and things that I've done. And I, and I make it very approachable um, for, for people to just, you know, get their mind wrapped around and realize, you know, the basic steps to go ahead and do these things. So what you want for mushrooms is healthy wood. So ideally uh, cut when it's dormant. So that's either late winter or now uh, for us here uh, in November, when the trees go dormant again, uh, we look for trees that might need to be thinned, uh, you know, smaller diameter. We're talking four to eight inches approximately in diameter. Uh, so a lot of times in, in the forest regrowth, we get, we get a jumble of trees. Um, so going through and thinning those out sometimes is, is, is helpful. Uh, to sort of speed up succession in the, in the woods, but then also gives us, you know, perfect mushroom wood. Uh, branch wood is really good. So a lot of times people are taking down trees in your area, um, beautiful trees that are healthy. Don't ask me why people need to cut down trees all the time, but they are. So it's like, okay, well that, you know, you, what you want is that branch wood. The branch wood has a lot of sap in it, uh, sap wood, I should say the you know the the sort of it's almost like white bread for the fungi you know they eat it up um, versus some of that harder heartwood uh, that you might find uh, in the in the core trunk of the tree so younger trees are full of sapwood uh, branches are full of sapwood you can have you can use wood that has some heartwood in it but make sure it's got enough sapwood for the fungi to really get started and and then it's just a matter of drilling you know you drill your log you know, about every six inches, rotate it over four inches, keep, you know, keep doing that pattern every six inches around your log. So a log is usually 30, 36 inches long. You might use 25, 30 plugs. You get these little wooden dowels or sawdust that are inoculated with certain types of uh, shiitake or oyster. And you just, you know, you infill those drilled holes, you seal them with wax and you put your log, uh, you know, in a place that stays moist and give it time and usually about a year it'll start popping mushrooms you know twice a year for many years uh so it's again it's just like one little input of time and you, you you have the right conditions it just flourishes for you and it's a great way to be productive in the shade uh and these logs can be very productive you can easily get a pound you know a year off of each log and that's a lot when it comes to mushrooms um and you get multiple logs going and it's just amazing how productive they can be without much input um, you know, in the right conditions. And you can, you know, even in suburbia and many places, you know, you can retrofit this uh, growing mushrooms. I, I read an article about two guys that lived in suburbia at a quarter acre lot 
they shut up they, they set up shade cloth in their in their little duplex in the back of their, <laughs> their yard and went and got logs from somewhere nearby or you could get a you know talk to someone who cuts for firewood and tell them exactly what you want you don't have to have woods or logs or even know how to use a chainsaw you can coordinate getting these materials to you and they set it up and i think they grew 4000 logs uh, in their in their little backyard and made over eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> so you know it, it's, it's variable. It's actually yeah. It, it's it's one of it's it's one of the most lucrative legal crops you know that you can work with. Um, pawpaws too. Uh, you know the pawpaws are selling for easy ten dollars a pound. Wow. And that's like two pawpaws. Remember, a tree can do thirty five pounds. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. I don't know how long that's going to last, but, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal, um, you know, return. And it's important to look for these sort of niche, niche markets. If you really are thinking about growing something to sell, to make a, you know, to live on, uh, because as most people who've done market gardening, um, you know, realize that it's a lot of hard work and, and, and you really don't make much money, but if you get sort of niche creative, um, and you work with perennials, you put a little bit of investment of time up front, then you can really actually do quite well with a lot less work. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I saw, I mean, you've got your kids doing it with, uh, with the inoculating the logs and doing the mushrooms and stuff. I mean, that's a pretty neat family project as well, you know, to try and do that and, and get everybody involved and, and then, uh, reap the reward. And then it's probably pretty, uh, pretty good feeling to do that it is it's fun the kids do love it and it's a good it's kind of a good community thing to get people around um you know it kind of has that collective energy to get more logs or you know get get things done uh gather more people everyone loves it man and they come out and we do mushroom workshops or just you know volunteer day and we do mushrooms people just get excited um and remember if you are cutting the trees, you can inoculate the stumps. Uh, the stumps actually can can produce for ten or more years because um, they have that network uh, of wood and root in the ground, and it has a nice balance of moisture because it's in the ground. So the stumps are, you know, and you've probably seen stumps, you know, old stumps sprouting mushrooms in parking lots or you know who knows where, um, you know, long after they were cut. So if you get a chance, uh, definitely, definitely inoculate the stumps. Yeah. That's one of the things that, um, I had, I cut down a, a old black walnut tree on my property, which is my property is riddled with black walnuts. And this year we had such an abundance of walnuts It almost got to the point to where I really didn't know what to do or even how to process them anymore because it came, came in such abundance this year that, and then I showed you some pictures and stuff of how, how I came up with to do it because it was too much to process with my old methods. But, um, I cut down this walnut tree cause it was dead growth. Um, and I didn't want it falling on the driveway and crushing a bunch of cars. That'd be terrible. <laughs> so, um, when I cut it down, I actually had a friend's dad come over with a stump grinder and grind the stump. But underneath, for about four or five years, I had morels. I think it was about five years I had morels growing in that spot after I cut it down, wow. about a year after. And I never saw that relationship before. And I still, in the wild, sometimes look around, you know, dead growth uh, walnut trees, but haven't found any morels other than that spot. And I'm wondering if it might have been that I brought my morel bag or something and accidentally inoculated that one area as it was being ground or something. But uh, pretty cool. Could be. 
could be, um, you know, they, you can actually put, you know, if you, like for your chainsaw oil, you can, you can use, you know, whatever kind of oil you can use cooking oil. Um, and it's, and you can inoculate your cooking oil with, you know, spores of say oyster. And when you're out there and you're working in the, you know, the, the forest full of tulip poplar and you're cutting, you're just throwing the spores everywhere while you're cutting. Um, and that's a really cool, you know, way to add uh, certain types of mushrooms into, into your, your ecosystem. I know that um, Paul Stamets, who's really the guru of, of all things fungi and his, his, his outfits called fungi perfecti. And they're great. Also wonderful resource, uh, both for, you know, all things to grow mushrooms, but uh, just to learn the deeper relationship that we have with fungi. Uh, and if you have 18 minutes, I highly recommend listening to Paul Stamets Ted talk. I think it's called seven ways mushrooms can save the world. And it'll blow, it'll blow you away to realize <laughs> how interlinked we are as a species and as a planet with fungi and different ways to work with fungi, uh, you know, as we, as we move forward into the sixth extinction of the planet, you know, we're in the, we're in an extinction period and it's, it's like, well, what species, you know, can we pair with to successfully, you know, make it through. And when you look back in historical um, records of, of, of past extinctions, you know, the, the majority of those few species that made it through were the ones that paired with fungi. And it's like, okay, here we are again, <laughs> we're going to an extension and fungi are, you know, are, are the ally, you know, one of the main allies. And I think the nut trees are too, you know, um, and certain ones within the nut trees have, have really even shown themselves in recent times to, to be very supportive of the human species. Uh, the chestnut, and you know, during during World War II, many parts of Italy and France were cut off, uh, and those those areas already had a culture of growing and working with chestnuts, which are annual bearers, which is really important. So they annually bear copious amounts of nuts that are high in carbohydrates uh, and very low in oil, which means they store very well, uh, either you know as a dried nut or as a flower. And then can be eaten, you know, in many different creative, tasty ways. Uh, and many of those isolated communities literally pulled through and survived because of the chestnut. Uh, and there's many stories of the chestnut supporting, you know, humans during, you know, during good and, and stressful times. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're kind of in that mix now, you know, we're in good and stressful times. And I think working with the chestnut, in our case, the hybrid chestnut and what's proving to work really well um, as far as, you know, health of tree, productivity, quality of nuts is the uh, Chinese chestnut. Um, it's Molissima. So there's, there's different types of chestnuts across the world. You know, there's the American chestnut, which is not currently being productive. Um, there's the European chestnut, which has quite a few disease issues for many parts uh, of, of the country, certainly the mid-Atlantic. Um, and, you know, then there's a couple different Asian chestnuts. There's a Korean chestnut, there's a Japanese chestnut, and there's a Chinese chestnut. And these are all kind of distinct species. 
And what's really being proven in many parts of the U.S. right now is the Chinese chestnut is thriving. It, it is very resistant to the fungal issues that are keeping the American chestnut from being productive. Um, they're fast growing, they're tough, and they're annual producers, you know, of up to, you know, 100 pounds per tree of a very nutrient-dense, carbohydrate-rich uh, nut, you know, basically it's a grain tree. It's, it's bread tree. Um, it's a perennial food source that feeds not only humans, but the entire ecosystem, you know, all the animals are showing up there, you know, all the macro fauna are showing up and eating that. And then that's trickling down through the system. So they're pretty much, you know, a keystone species, the nut trees in the North are keystone. And that's an ecological term that we use you know, based on an arch, you know, like a stone arch, that center stone is called the keystone. And that's what holds, holds it all together. And fungi are keystone species for our existence. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to also say that nut trees are a keystone in you know, our temperate forest ecosystems uh, and that they, they support the network of wildlife uh, and traditionally humans. You know, when you look at, indigenous ways of working with the land and being with the land along, you know, these, this whole Eastern seaboard was, you know, in selection of nuts, uh, selecting the nut trees that, you know, were highly productive, good genetics. Um, and then a lot, of, a lot of burning was done in the understory to clear uh, so that as the wildlife came and eat the nuts, they could do the hunting. So they gathered and ate the nuts, stored the nuts, uh, but then they also relied on, the wildlife that ate the nuts to get through the winters and through the cold times here. So again, just the nuts are, are extremely important. Um, and right now, you know, the grocery stores are open, everything is flowing, very grateful for that. Uh, but in planning for, you know, reduction in, in you know, in, in certain availability of food. And again, even if it's not just, you know, in quantity and quality, you know, I'm sure the planet's going to keep pumping out low grade grains, you know, as we go into the future, you know, um, but is that really feeding us? Um, and where's it coming from? And there's just, you know, there's, there's more issues with transportation, uh, whereas, you know, the nuts we can grow here, they're high nutrient density, they store well, you know, we can feed the animals with them, even if it's domestic animals, you know, you, your chestnut is a great feed for, you know, your domesticated animals, you can store it and feed your animals it over the winter as well. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of applicability for nut trees, um, both economically and ecologically, and, and just basic survival. Yeah. Um, so I got to ask you, though, is the Chinese chestnut a smaller chestnut than the uh, the american chestnut it's a smaller tree so it's been worked with for thousands of years you know by a culture that understands its value and understands the the value of working with perennials whereas you know the the more contemporary you know culture in the u.s has has been very annual oriented uh, in its diet and its use of the land and has not necessarily done the work that these other cultures have with tree crops. So, you know, the, the Chinese and other these cultures that have tradition of working with their, with really intimately with their ecosystems have worked with developing some great genetics. Um, and their trees are only about 30 or 40 feet tall, umbrella shaped, 
which really maximizes, you know, access to sun and access, you know, to actually being able to harvest and not overwhelm and shade each other out at high, at high reaches. So, yeah, so they're, they are smaller, they, but they produce large nuts. You know, a lot of the, you know, sort of the, the storybook chestnuts that we, that we think about, um, that's really what you're getting from the Chinese chestnuts and they're very tasty. I did a blind taste test once early on in my, in my, in my adventures with chestnuts where I wasn't really already familiar with the flavors of the different types of chestnuts. So I did a blind chestnut tasting of American, uh, European, uh, Chinese, and Japanese. And out of those, the American actually was very tasty. The American chestnuts, it's small. Uh, you know, it, it can be like a small acorn size, and, but very tasty, very sweet. And then the Chinese chestnut was also delicious, uh, very sweet, very crisp. And the European and the, um, and the Japanese were still good, but just didn't quite have that same sweet crispness for, at least in the example that I had. Um, so anyway, it's the Chinese chestnut's one of the best tasting chestnuts. It's one of the most productive chestnuts. Uh, the tree is, is very tough. Um, you know, once you get it established, it's very drought tolerant. Uh, it'll grow on less than ideal soils. It just needs drainage. Uh, it does not like a high pH though. So, you know, if you have a high pH soil, it may not be best suited for the, for the chestnuts, but, uh, you know, historically they're grown on really steep hillsides. You know, if you look at these places like in Corsica and other places and, in Europe, a lot of times they're grown on the marginal hillsides and the lowlands are, you know, saved for the grains and whatnot. And that's also a traditional wise use of land. You know, when things are sloped, put perennials on it. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're largely losing your, you know, your soil and your runoff on, on anything that's got a slope uh, that doesn't have trees or some kind of woody perennials on it. Uh, typically is going to lose its its value and cultures that that work intimately with their ecosystems for generations 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 you know recognize the the value of doing your your woody perennials on slopes and then use your lowlands for your annuals um, and maybe your livestock interesting so if someone was interested in trying to grow chestnuts on their property or something like that where where would they go and try and uh, purchase a chestnut tree or a Chinese. So, so I'll give a pitch for a nonprofit that I started a couple of years ago based on nut trees and specifically uh, the productive uh, chestnut trees. And, and that is silvoculture, silvoculture.org uh, is a great place to start, to start just to land and start to learn um, you know, about these types of nuts that we're talking about. And there's links and resources to more from our site. Uh, the University of Missouri has an agroforestry program that has done a lot of work and research with uh, the, the Chinese chestnut. Uh, they're a great resource as well. They have some really good, good um, papers, PDFs that can give you a lot of understanding. Silvoculture does as well. Um, I think even on your landing page, you, you can read, uh, you know, sort of an extended brochure that answers a lot of general questions very quickly. And, you know, from there, it depends where you're at in the country, uh, the Northwest, U.S. Northwest 
uh, has its own sort of uh, culture for growing nuts and they can get away with growing some of the European chestnuts more though. I don't, I don't know for how long uh, I know that Chinese chestnuts probably doing well in those regions as well. Um, Route nine cooperative is in Ohio and a great resource for trees uh, and, and culinary nuts and seed nuts. University of Missouri also has a limited amount of nuts you can order and they have some of the best genetics. Uh, and then for seed nuts, uh, Route 9 Cooperative is another good source. And then as you go down to the sort of the Southeast area, there's the Dunstan chestnut. So a Dunstan chestnut has been a very successful marketing campaign on what looks like largely a Chinese uh, type chestnut, but uh, is marketed as an American uh, Chinese hybrid. And it seems to be doing quite well in the Southeast region. Um, so Dunstan chestnuts would be something that you might find in that area. Uh, you know, each area and region, you know, might start already having uh, its own sort of, you know, chestnut culture going. And we're going to hear more and more about this because already, um, you know, more and more orchards are coming online because they're proving themselves to be economically viable as well. So there's quite good income to be made by planting chestnuts and doing chestnut orcharding and it's proving itself. So a lot more people are getting on board with it. So in years to come, we're gonna hear a lot more about chestnuts in our country because we're also importing 88% of the chestnuts that we consume, 88%. And, and yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just, just, from, just, from, just, just from supply demand, right there it's like whoa there's a there's a there's a great market opportunity here and the nuts we grow are going to be of better quality uh partly because we don't have to ship them and the nuts that are shipped from europe and other places do not arrive they're not handled well and typically the quality is is lost uh, whereas grow them in country access direct direct access to the markets uh you get high quality nuts and there's just a high demand for them yeah. um already so so yeah not to mention supply chain shortages and shipping delays and everything else that we're seeing and experiencing nowadays kind of how you were talking about earlier i mean you, you're not feeling the pain that you could be feeling yet but it's a definite possibility yeah. and why not uh, like you said have those local resources available and in abundance to where you and the wildlife can enjoy them right yeah and and so yeah just basic preparedness you know, no doom and gloom here, but basic preparedness, <laughs> basic being prepared is, is wise. Um, but then also the actions that we can take right now with our resources and our knowledge to plant nut trees will be here for hundreds of years. These trees live for hundreds of years. You know, there's some chestnuts that live over a thousand years and they stay productive and pumping nuts. So it's like, well, what's valuable with what we with who we are, where we are, and what we have right now, to me, it comes down to planting nut trees, and that's going to feed life, you know, for a long, long time. And, and that just also gives my life value and what I focus on, you know, a lot of meaning. And that can, you know, that, that can go for all of us. Uh, we can find ways to help supporting nut trees, you know, and every nut tree you plant will be, will be quite a legacy. Um, so I got to ask you though, like other than the chestnut, I mean, is there any other one that kind of like stands out that, uh, is a definite producer? That's something that's uh, super valuable as far as resources. Yes, absolutely. There's quite a few, uh, you mentioned earlier the black walnut. So the black walnut, especially in our region, I mean, the, the U S I mean, the, the, what we call the U S this continent, you know, I think has like the, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the, the originator of that family. And there's the most of that species on this continent. They do really well. 
um, here. Now, black walnuts like that wild crab apple or wild pawpaw, there's a big variety in quality. So a lot of the just wild black walnuts like that we have around here are thick shelled. Uh, and when you open them, there's a lot of different compartments and the nuts are really kind of tricky to get out. And it ends up being all this, these little pieces and a lot of work. Whereas the select genetics in, in walnuts are, you know, large, thinner shelled, and they have larger compartments where you could pop out, you know, more easily what we're used to seeing, uh, you know, as sort of a, a walnut, which are usually European walnuts, um, you know, come out as these nice full halves. So I think, I think working with the black walnut in a lot of areas is really worthwhile. Uh, but again, taking the, taking the effort to get good genetics, you know, and with black walnuts, a lot of times seeds can, can bring. So, so if you're getting seeds from an orchard, that's all, you know, got grafted cultivars and has good genetics, generally speaking, planting a black walnut seed with good genetics will give you a tree with good genetics. Um, of course, you can always graft them and grafting does give you even more assurance of, of having high quality. Um, but yeah, I would say the black walnut and the black walnut, not only for its, its, its eating quality, but you can also press oil out of black walnuts. So it's got a high, you know, a decent, I should say a decent oil content. Um, so we think in terms of, of, of your, your, you know, sort of your bread and your butter. Uh, and when it comes to trees, you know, your bread trees are your chestnut you know, maybe your white acorns, you know, these are your carbohydrate rich, you know, food source. And then your butter, your oil trees are things like your bitter nut hickory, which has a very high oil content, uh, a thin shell, and it presses oil quite easily and readily. And so do hazelnuts. So hazelnuts have a high oil content and can be pressed quite easily, um, you know, to create, you know, your, your oil reserves, you know, your nutrient rich oil. Um, so I think thinking in those terms is helpful uh, in that you have a diversity for, for your diet and for, you know, for marketing. Um, trying to think of what else. So pecans, a pecan is a hickory. Uh, it's a thin shelled hickory. And there are really great Northern pecans. Um, so, you know, if you're in the North, look for good genetics of northern pecans they do exist um, don't necessarily buy a pecan from the south and plant it look for what is known as good northern pecans um, and you need you, know, you need to plant you know a handful of them for good cross-pollination uh, and then again grafting them is a great idea to get exactly you know what you're hoping for i'm actually sitting here right now with a shell bark hickory that is a solid uh, two inches by two inches. I mean, it's just huge for a hickory nut. Um, this is a grafted cultivar. Uh, so, so, you know, it, it, it does make sense to get the good genetics with anything you're going to plant. If you're going to take the effort and the time to plant something, to get it established, then I encourage you to get the best genetics, not necessarily. So a lot of people will get free trees, right? They'll get free trees from an organization. And they're like, Oh, great. It's a free tree. And they, and they plant and they care for it and they put, you know, they, they give valuable space to it um, without really thinking that really that that free part was not really the most valuable part. Um, I encourage people moreover to think about really maybe putting some little bit of money toward buying good genetics, you know, from a good nursery uh, that has, 
you know, the same tree, but you're going to get a lot more out of it as far as the food goes. Really, the, the time and the input and the care of your tree is, is the value. Uh, so you might as well, you know, make sure you've got some of the best genetics um, to start with. And, I, you know, a couple of, a couple of great nurseries, Grimo, Grimo Nut Nursery is a great nursery. They're actually just in Ontario, so they're in Canada, but they ship to the U.S. They have a lot of good uh, select genetics. Um, England's Orchard, he's down in Kentucky, I want to say, and he's got some good uh, genetics uh, for the black walnuts and others. Um, Plant Path Nursery, uh, our friends uh, of mine, they're here in Maryland. They have a lot of good genetics. Um, and they have a lot of those good hybrid Chinese chestnuts I was telling you about. So Plant Path Nursery is a good one. Um, and then, yeah, just paying attention to the nurseries and what they're actually really saying about the genetics, because if they have good genetics, they're going to talk about it. They're going to say they have it. Uh, and it's good to question and ask, you know, up front, you know, what is the source of, you know, of these plants? And if someone really can't tell you, then I would move along until, you know, you can get some clarity. Uh, and, and that goes for fruit trees, too. You know, if it's persimmons, you know, get, you know, get some of the select persimmons. Um, you know, if it's aronia berries, you know, get some of the select aronia berries, you know, versus, you know, a nursery that might just be selling wild stock, you know, wild pawpaws. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I, unless you wanted it for rootstock, um, I would look for, you know, stuff that, you know, people who have taken the time to really focus on, on the stuff of, of, of good quality. Yeah, no, that's great. Great advice. Um, so I got to ask you, what is an aronia berry? I've never even heard of that. I'm just remembering too, I, I have a small nursery myself. I should make a small pitch for myself, but uh, you know, I don't do any shipping or anything. It's, it's really more, uh, you know, limited in people coming to, to come and visit and see our food forests and things on certain days that I'm open uh, and everything that I grow uh, grows really well. So it's, it's kind of a very, a very sifted uh, collection and that's aronia berries, it's pawpaws, it's American elderberries, you know, it's, it's all these nuts we've mentioned, um, persimmons, you know, all of these characters, which are easy to grow and very productive, uh, which is what I always focus on. Um, so aronia berries, um, it, it's, um, there's, there's red and black, and these are shrubs, very beautiful ornamental shrubs uh, that can typically grow six, eight, 10 feet tall. The black uh, aronia, which is what I focus on because that's a really productive berry that's very medicinal as well. Very easy to harvest and a very tough plant, all great factors. Uh, the deer do seem to like to eat the plant itself. So I have to kind of individually fence them to get them established. Um, but it's, it's got a terrible common name called chokeberry, uh, not to be confused with choke cherry, which is a different, uh, a tree, different tree species. Um, so the choke, the chokeberry, the black aronia, uh, is a producer of, of sort of very large looking blueberries. They're, they're very dark purple, black, the size of a large and it kind of looks like blueberries and they hang in these clusters, these big droops that are really easy to harvest, which is a big boon because harvesting is, is, is not easy work. It gets romanticized a lot, but harvesting is, is, it's quite a thing. So a plant that harvests easily 
has a lot of value. Um, and it harvests in August, which is wonderful too, because you're not so busy with so many other types of seasonal work. Um, so getting out there and getting the aronia berries, they just, they just pull off a whole cluster at once, like milking a cow. It's like, and they all fall off and the birds don't hit them right away. Like if they go into the winter, the birds will start eating them, hmm. but they won't eat them right away, which is another big, big plus. Huge plus. Uh, um, <laughs> huge plus, huge plus, right? So there's a lot of pluses and they're very tough. They'll take dry, they'll take wet, they'll take salt spray. And they're very ornamental. You know, sometimes you can plant them in a nice long hedge or what you might call a fedge, you know, a fruiting hedge, uh, beautiful fall color. Um, yeah, I'm just a big fan of them. But again, so there's a lot of wild ones and you're going to get small berries, still good. Or you can go with, uh, uh, you know, something that's been more cultivated. And what I recommend is the cultivar Viking. So Viking, if you look it up, I think organic, organic aronia berry, if you Google that, you'll come up with these guys out out in the midwest who have started a uh you know a whole you know business around selling their plants and the fruit uh, but you can get relatively inexpensive viking um you know um, aronia plants from them and then the aronia berry you don't want to eat it fresh out of hand that's where it gets its name choke berry uh, it's quite astringent but when you when you when you steam or cook it down like you would elderberries uh, it takes on this beautiful, deep, rich sort of old world berry flavor um, that makes great jams. You know, it's great syrups. It makes great, great additive to wine making meads. Uh, it's very popular in the cider world uh, because it adds like a nice tannic finish uh, to a hard cider. And, and it's super medicinal. It's one of the most medicinal berries on the planet. So it's just one of these win, win, win. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. Um, it's been good talking to you. I think that's a good point to wrap it up here as, uh, we're approaching on the hour. Um, but before we go, Michael, I want to ask you to just tell everybody where they can find you and any resources if they want to get in touch with you or anything like that. And even your books, uh, one more time so they can try and find those books and, and just learn so much more from a wonderful resource. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Um, so my landing website is, is Ecologia Design. Uh, Ecologia is a Portuguese word for, for ecology. So ecologiadesign.com is a, is a wonderful landing spot for all the things that I've talked about and a lot more. Uh, we didn't even talk about natural burial, which is another thing that I'm, you know, that, that, that's part of the full circle in, in everything that I'm, I'm working with and seeing that often gets left out in, in discussions and land use and just, you know, how we hold each other in transition. Um, but, you know, on, on my website, you'll find it, you'll find a lot um, and, and links to my books there. Um, and you can read more about the books. And there's a lot of how to in my website as well. So there's quite a good information about growing um, you know, mushrooms, you know, how to, we didn't talk about really shaping your landscape to harvest water passively, working with swales on contour, key line design. Um, yeah. So that's a great spot for everything. I've got other podcasts I've recorded and I'm always eager to, to, to talk to others. Uh, and I've recently kind of had this small aha moment where I'm like, I need to interact more with the, you know, the, the, the hunting community 
because they're the ones that are already planting a lot of nut trees and persimmons. And, you know, they're already moving in that direction. And I feel like what I have to add as far as, you know, understanding, you know, some of the genetic opportunities or even just some for the, the patterning, you know, how would you do an agroforestry system on an existing cornfield or hayfield? What does that look like? Uh, you know, those are things that I'm drafting and designing and working with a lot now. And that's where my focus and interest is going versus, you know, sort of smaller residential edible landscaping, which is a lot of what I was doing, uh, really moving into, you know, these, these larger, you know, nut rich systems. So I'm eager to have more conversations with the, you know, with the, with, with audiences uh, around this. Um, so I'll just throw that out there for other people who, who have podcasts or audiences um, you know, I'm willing to, to share in this direction. Uh, and then on Instagram, um, at permaculture ninja, uh, I, that's probably where I do some of my more, more posting about kind of what I'm up to. Um, that said, I'm, I'm going to take a sabbatical uh, from, <laughs> from email, from social media. I'm going to get a flip top phone for about six weeks. I think starting around, uh, December 20th to about February 1st, I'm, I'm going, I'm going offline. Um, but, you know, aside from that, uh, those are, those are ways and places that you can, you can connect with me. Wonderful. I, uh, I appreciate it so much. And I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on and actually talk about, um, I, I guess we never even got to it really <laughs> about the, the planting of the, the, uh, I don't. What do you? I don't even know what you called it. The nut rich agroforest for. Uh, yeah, the agroforestry. Yeah, yeah actually, for, I'm looking. <laughs> yeah. For, I, I know. I was just this morning right before our talk designing um, designing these these systems where you know you could do chestnut, pecan, walnut, and you'd interplant with black locust, pawpaw, aronia. You know, you could do either low intensity or high intensity. I'm actually going to see if I can get these drafted and probably put up on my website. Uh, so that there would be some general, general understanding around it. But that's definitely something I would be happy to, to go into more detail on because that's the practical side. It's like, well, how do I do this? Uh, yeah, great ideas, but, you know, how do I do it? You know, what are the straightforward ways to begin or to conceptualize how this would happen? Uh, and I've done a number of transitions of corn and uh, pasture and hay fields into these, these these, these systems. Um, so I'm happy to share that how to, uh, whatever it takes to really get this happening is where I want to put myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv 
Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.